Thank you so much. It's good music, amen? Sweet spirit, amen? I uh, walked out of my uh, cottage this morning and said to myself, boy, you are not in Georgia anymore. And the next word out of my mouth was hallelujah. (laughs) It's never this cold in Georgia this time of year. Uh, If you were not in the Bible study this morning, shame on you. Uh, Wow. Uh, I'm... I'm I'm blessed already. Goodness gracious, it was good. So you need to be there tomorrow morning for sure. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me, please, to 2 Chronicles. I love preaching out of the Old Testament. I was, uh, when I was pastoring, I had a lady come to my church one time, and she was a member of the church, and she came and she said, I'm leaving the church. I said, well, we're all leaving today. She said, no, I'm leaving for good. I said, really? She said, yes. I said, why? She said, all you ever do is preach out of the Old Testament. And she was right. Both times that she'd been to church, I'd preached out of the Old Testament. <laughs> you know, there are, some, um, there are some big pastors these days that are saying you don't need the Old Testament anymore. That's a shame. That's a real shame. You cannot have the New Testament without the Old Testament. Anyway, that's my speech for the day. Second Chronicles 7, you've heard this many, many times, and um, I always hesitate to preach on a passage you've heard many times, but uh, Second Chronicles 7, uh, beginning with verse 11, 711. If you're able, if you'll stand with me, please, out of reverence for the Word of God. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. And when I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, and send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever Thanks be to God. Thank you. Be seated, please. I need a disclaimer. I need a disclaimer as I start this morning. Sometimes I'm very glad my wife is not with me because she says, first of all, don't ever apologize. Well, that's... I need to apologize this morning because I will be doing some reading uh, and the reason, and, and that's not normal for me, but the reason I need to re- do some reading this morning is because the things I'm reading about are much better than I could say it. Uh, and it's not my stuff anyway, and so you'll need to hear that this morning. 
I believe, dear friends, more than anything else, the church of Jesus Christ today needs revival more than any other day. I think everybody ought to say amen. What the church needs today is real revival. John talked about, said the same thing basically in one statement this morning, that the church needs revival. I know all of you are not United Methodists, and some of you say praise God. Uh, many of us are Wesleyan in origin, and so uh, I, I will be dealing with a lot of that this morning. I believe we need revival. I want to share with you this morning, a, uh, years and years ago, when Dr. Maxie Dunham became president of Asbury Theological Seminary, the First Minister's Conference, when he was president, I attended. Uh, he said something that day in a sermon dealing with revival that I've never forgotten. In fact, it was so important to me, I bought the, I guess it was a tape back then, I bought the tape and I transcribed this statement word for word. And I want to read it to you word for word. These are the words of Maxie. My biggest concern, I say it again, my biggest concern, and I have an idea it's yours, my biggest concern is renewal and revival. And it could happen. It could happen. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I begin the challenge suggesting three secular writers, three articles. They were suggested to me by my friend Leonard Sweet of United Theological Seminary. In 1991, in a journal called The Public Interest, there were articles on urban blight and urban conditions in our nation. And one of the articles in that magazine was written by Roger Starr a professor at City College in New York. Now, Roger Starr is a liberal Jewish Democrat. Now, that's important to the story. A liberal Jewish Democrat from New York City. And he had come to the conclusion there, were no other, there was no other period in history that matches the day in which we live as did the 18th century England. There was the problem of addiction. They had just discovered gin. Families were decomposing. There were problems of pollution and crime and violence and rioting. Problems much like those of our day. And when Roger Starr discovered this, he decided he would go back and discern what it was that saved England and brought them through all of this. And would you believe this Jewish liberal Democrat argues that the only thing that saved England was someone he had never really heard of. Someone by the name of John Wesley, who started a movement called Methodism. And this is what he said. Now, I know I don't even know any Methodist. I don't know anything about them. But this Wesley started a movement that literally saved England. It was a movement that had profound social and economic and political consequences, which transformed and indeed saved that nation. And maybe what we need to do today, he added, is to study those Methodists and find out how they did it and duplicate what they did back then. One month later, George Will, and everybody knows George Will. He's a conservative Roman Catholic Republican. That's important to the story. A conservative Roman Catholic Republican in an article in the Washington Post 
He began by saying, I never thought I would agree with anything capitalized, anything that Roger Starr has ever written. But you know, this liberal has actually got a point. And that is in the 18th century, you've got a German and a French revolutions and other revolutions around the world, but you don't have an English revolution. And then he had second thoughts and said, yes, you did have an English revolution. It was a Methodist revolution because those Methodists turned their world upside down. And maybe what we need to do is to take Roger Starr seriously and begin to look at what the secret of those Methodists was. And then he added, I know this is going to sound strange, saying we need some more Methodists to save the world. And I hate to end an article in this way, but, and these are his precise words, does anybody out there have a better idea? One month later, Fred Burns, editor of the New Republic, he's an evangelical, moderate Episcopalian. That's important to the story. And he wrote, can you believe this? We've got George Will, the ultra-conservative, and Roger Starr, the ultra-liberal, agreeing on something. I can't believe it. But the more you think about it, he added, they're exactly right. But they forgot one thing, said Fred Burns. What they forgot is that basically the Methodist movement at heart was a spiritual awakening. Yes, it had tremendous social, economic, and political consequences. But it began as a spiritual revival a spiritual awakening. And unless we get in this nation a spiritual awakening and a spiritual revival that will create these kinds of social and economic and political implications, it won't work. It's got to begin as a movement of the Spirit or else it doesn't go anywhere. But we've got to begin, he said. We need a new generation of Methodists who will do in this day what they did in the 18th century. Can you believe it? a Jewish liberal Democrat, a conservative Republican Roman Catholic, and a moderate evangelical Episcopalian, all looking to the Methodists to save the world. Lord, help us. If my statement is true at the beginning that what we need is a revival more than anything else, my question is, then why don't we have it? Why don't we have it? I think one reason we don't have it is because we really don't even know what it is, a real revival. I had the privilege of preaching throughout northern England for several months, and I had never been to England at the time, and uh, so I arrived and I realized that the English don't speak English. At least they don't speak Georgia English. And I don't mean the accent, but the words were different. Uh, someone would say, did you see that lorry going down the road? And I said, a lorry? What in the world is a lorry? And it was explained to me that a lorry was a truck. And I'm thinking, why don't they just say truck? And then they would say, I would ask directions, and they would say, go down here on this tarmac and turn on that tarmac, and I'd say, what? Are we going to get in an airplane? No, a tarmac was, was the road, the blacktop. I remember uh, I got in trouble one time. I was always getting in trouble. 
over there because of the words I was using. And I have no idea why I would use this or say this, but I said something about uh, wiping my, my mouth, my nose or something, my mouth, I think, with a, with a napkin. And people laughed. I didn't think it was funny until somebody explained to me that uh, to the British, a nappy is a diaper, probably a dirty diaper that I was wiping my mouth with. There was this one man, I think he was self-appointed to follow me around every place I went. And, and he was my, my critic. It was, it was good criticism. He would help me with language. And I remember preaching on a revival there one time. And if there ever needs to be a place, a revival takes place, it's England. I, when I was there at least, um, I, I've never seen so many dead churches in my life. Just dead as dead can be, especially the Methodist churches. People followed me around like I was Billy Graham uh, because they were hungry for the gospel. And so I was preaching on revival, and when I got through, my friend came to me and said, Tom, you used the wrong word again. I said, what word? He said, the word revival. You used it wrong. That's, that's not the right, correct word. I said, well, what, what do you think revival is? He said, he said, well, when we do what you're doing, we call it a meeting. I said, okay. He said, when and only if the Holy Spirit descends does it become a revival. And I thought, how many meetings have I done? My uh, evangelism professor at Asbury Seminary, Dr. Robert Coleman, in his wonderful book, The Coming World Revival, says this, Sometimes heaven seems to come to earth. Men and women with lives broken by sin find grace to repent and the power to change. People make restitution for wrongs committed. Broken homes reunite. Sometimes heaven breaks through. Prayer comes especially easily. The scripture speaks with fresh meaning. Christ and his peace seem especially close. Temptations are overcome. Victory is realized. This is revival. Dr. Dennis Kinlaw said, give me one divine moment. One divine moment when God acts, and I say that moment is far superior to all the human efforts of man throughout the centuries. That's what I want to see. That's what I want to see here. That's what I want to see every place. But I believe most people have really never seen real outpouring of, of God. Where, wherever I go, I, I see pockets of revival. I see individuals revived, but I've only seen real revival once in my life. Let me give you a couple of illustrations from history of what I call real revival. Jonathan Edwards, all the pastors know that name. Jonathan Edwards, the pastor of Northampton, Massachusetts back in the 1700s, uh, a Puritan church, great great preacher. Revival broke out. You know, Massachusetts is, is a great hotbed for revivals, I'm sure. Listen to his words of what happened. Now, now let, me, let me back up and say this. 
There's a difference between a revivalist and an evangelist. Billy Graham was an evangelist. I consider myself an evangelist. John Wesley was a revivalist. And the difference is, is when a revivalist preaches, not only does the revival change a church, it changes a community. Or it maybe changes a country. It's that big as Wesley was. So listen for that in these words. Edwards says this, As the number of true saints multiply, the towns seem to be full of the presence of God. Did you catch that? The town. It never was so full of love and yet nor of joy, and yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of great joy, of families being account of salvation being brought unto them. On whatever occasions persons met together, Christ was to be heard of and seen in the midst of them. The Spirit of God began to be so wonderfully poured out in a general way through the town People had soon done away with their old quarrels and backbitings and intermeddling with their men's matters. The tavern was soon left empty. Every day seemed to be, in many respects, like a Sabbath day. Do it again. Do it again, God. When we were in England, my boys would wake up in the morning and say, Dad, do we have to see another cathedral? I, was, I wanted to go to a different cathedral every day. It was so beautiful. My favorite was the Coventry Cathedral uh, in Coventry, England. We, we lived not far from there while we were there. Coventry Cathedral is an Anglican church. In our country, would be called an Episcopalian church back then. The Coventry Cathedral was bombed in the Second World War. Uh, there was nothing left of the old cathedral except the wall. And so you've got this mammoth Gothic cathedral, five times bigger than this place, maybe ten times bigger. And all you've got is the outside walls, no roof, no windows, no doors. It was left so that people could always remember the horrors of war. But right beside it, just left it sitting there. Right beside it is the most marvelous, gorgeous, beautiful, modern cathedral. Huge. In 1962, revival broke out. <laughs> revival broke out at the Coventry Cathedral of all places. I want you to listen to the rector. This is how he describes it. The more deeply people were involved, the more clearly God was calling them to go deeper still and to offer Him the obedience of their whole lives. The diocese became a person, a body alive with a spirit. We became a loving family with a purpose. We experienced an extraordinary outburst of worship and happiness. Great services were held in the new cathedral, offering up to God every part of our daily lives. We've seen reality break through like the sun through a fog, sweeping away pretenses. People have been set free to become what they really are. We've begun to see that a whole diocese could be a fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I was at Asbury Seminary in my middle of the year, February the 3rd, 
1970. I think I'll share about the revival at Asbury later, but let me just mention this. It was in a normal, supposedly normal chapel service. It was supposed to be an hour long, and it didn't quit for 185 straight hours. Changed my life. Not at first. I was a doubter. Uh, if you've never seen the revival, uh, the, a new video has been published on the revival at Asbury. It changes lives. It changed my. I've only seen it once. People would come from all of the United States. People came from all over the world. They'd walk on the grounds, and you would just you would know the presence of God was there. Kids came that were, we call them townies. They were, some of them seminary and college professors' kids, and they were even Dr. Kenlaw's kids and some of the others would walk on the campus. There were some kids on drugs. They would walk on, and they would fall on their faces and, and just relinquish and repent of sin and now are preaching the gospel. That's revival. That's, that, that's what I want to see. I want to see it here. Can it happen? Sure it can happen. So how does it happen? Well, don't get confused, please. Um, you, you don't work up a revival. You don't sing up a revival. It's from God. It comes. And it comes when we meet God's conditions. I'm through with my introduction. Are you ready for the sermon? I'll go quickly. Billy Graham says, I believe that we can have revival anytime we meet God's conditions. I believe that God is true to his word and he will rain righteousness upon us if we meet his conditions. The question I ask you this morning is, do you really want revival? I'm not sure everybody does. I think some people are scared of revival. I know some preachers that are scared stiff of revivals because you don't control a revival. The Asbury revival was not controllable. Dr. Kenlaw didn't control it. No preacher got up to preach. They were scared to get in the pulpit because it was of God. Real God. Do you want revival? Do you really sincerely want it? Well, I'm going to go through this passage of Scripture word for word just quickly, I promise. The first word is if. If. Verse 14. If. If is a starts a conditional promise. Do you understand conditional promises? Had in high school English. It's if this takes place, then this will take place. If this does not take place, this is not going to take place. Everything is based on the condition. If you, if you meet the condition, this will happen. That's the way this starts. If my people, who are my people? <laughs> We're called Christians. We're believers. Listen, folks, revival is not for the lost. Revival is for the Christian. It's called revival. Are you with me? If it was for, if it was for other folks, it would be called vival. But it's revival. It's for us who need to be revived. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. John talked about pride this morning. 
And he said the same thing I was going to say, and so I'll say it again. Pride keeps more believers, more believers, just in chains. It keeps more people from coming to the altar, he said, and I agree totally, than anything else. And when I say pride, I'm not talking about pride I have for my grandchildren and their own line if you want to see them. I'm not talking about that kind of pride. I'm talking pride says, what will other people think? I've been coming to this camp meeting forever. What will somebody think if I come to the altar? Maybe they'll think I'm not a Christian. That's pride, friends. Humbling ourselves, saying, God, I can't do it. I can't handle this situation at home. I can't handle this situation with my children, my grandchildren. I can't handle I just can't do it. That's releasing of pride when you say, I can't do it. Only God can do it. Some of you this morning, you're in situations, you know situations, where if God doesn't do something, it won't happen. It'll take a miracle. And you say, I can't do it. Some of us have been living for so long saying, I can do that. I can handle that situation. No, you can't. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. Well, we talked last night about prayer. The context of this, um, if you read on and keep reading it, it it's a prayer of forgiveness. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Psalm 66, 8, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You know, I find a lot of people say, God hears every prayer. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Did you just hear what I read? If I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not forgive. I mean, if I, if I've sin, if cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. I read a Gallup poll several years ago that said nine out of ten Americans pray. It's pretty good. Forty-seven percent of them ask God for favors or help or guidance or strength. Eighteen percent give thanks. Three percent ask for forgiveness. We've lost the concept of sin. All sin, the psalmist says, is against God. So whenever we sin against each other, we hurt each other, we sin against God. We hurt God. Sin has to go. It's got to go. Dr. Coleman went on to say, if any impediment, any impediment to the flow of God's grace must be removed. Unbelief, lust, lying, cheating, unclean thoughts, filthy speech, dirty habits, cursing, ingratitude, indifference to responsibility, disregard of self-discipline, prayerlessness, robbing God of tithes, neglect of the poor, racial discrimination, an unforgiving spirit, backbiting, envy, jealousy, bitterness, deceitfulness, selfishness, hypocrisy, whatever it is, whether in deed or disposition, if known to be contrary to the holiness of God, it must be confessed and forsaken. God will use a small vessel but he will not use a dirty one. You want to see revival? Confession of sin. 
Then it goes on to say, and seek my face. Not seek what God can do for us, not seek his hand, but his face, where we just come to the point of saying, I love him so much. I want to see revival in my own heart. And then it says, turn. Do you understand turn? You understand repentance? means turn, 180 degree turn. I'm going the way I want to go, and you turn, you repent, you go the way God wants to go. Turn from your wicked ways. I think I mentioned last night uh, about breaking, God breaking, uh, breaking us. We need to be broken. We need to be broken of our pride. We need to be broken. That's what he's talking about here. Tab, you know the the great chorus, uh, Spirit of the Living God. I, uh, you know, it goes, melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. I was, uh, I was in a little small church. I preach in a lot of small churches. A little small church in the, out in the boonies somewhere. And, and they had these old, what do you call them, Tam? The, the square notes, the shape notes kind of thing, you know, and it, it must, that, that little hymnal must have been 100 years old. I mean, it was just old. And, and I just happened to turn to Spirit of the Living God. It was in this book, this song book. And I saw something that I thought was true, but I never knew it was. That first verse was not, wasn't the way it was written. It wasn't melt me. Originally, it was break me. And some probably good Methodists thought, that's too hard a word. Let's change it to melt. Oh, God, I'd much rather be melted than broken. But that's what he's talking about here. Spirit of the living God, break me. Do we have the courage? Do we really want revival? If we really want revival, can we not pray, God, would you, if I need to be broken, would you break me this week? Break me of something, hard hearts or, or, or whatever it is in your life. God, would you break me? I don't like being broken. But if you want to see revival, folks, we've got to be broken. Turn from your wicked ways. And then the, the, the next word is the best word in the whole section. You ready for this? Then. You do all of those things. Then. Then. God will hear your prayer. You want God to hear your prayer? Follow the directions. Then God will hear. And then he will forgive some of your sins. No, no, no. He'll forgive every sin you've ever committed. And he doesn't even remember them anymore. He, he takes your sin, he throws it in the depths of the ocean. He separates you from your sin as far as the east is from the west. Somebody else will even remember. I've got people that remember sins I've committed. But if I were to go to God and say, God, tell me if I'm wrong at this place, but I think it's what he's saying. God, do you remember that sin I committed in 1992? He'd say, Tom, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I've forgiven you. You're cleansed. I don't remember it anymore. The devil may bring it up to other people. 
and may even bring it up to you, but God says, I will forgive your sins. And then he says, I'll bring healing. I'll bring healing to you. Physical healing? Yeah. Emotional healing? Yep. Spiritual healing? Oh, we need it. Relational healing? Yeah. Broken homes, broken lives, healing. That's what we will have. And Satan will do everything he can this week to mess that up. But God is still true to his word. And if we, if we follow this, if we do what he's asked us to do, God will bring revival. I'm talking about real revival. Honest to goodness, real revival. That's what I want to see. That's what I'm planning on seeing. You know, with these guys I'm with, both of them, <laughs> but it's up to us. I, uh, I want to close by sharing a, um, a story with you, and it's, it's a story that I've questioned whether I should even use it because it, it's, a, it's a made-up story, for one thing, and secondly, it's, it's a funny story, and I never... I never end a sermon with a funny story, except now. And I don't know why I'm doing it, but I want to share it with you anyway. A made-up story. Man's name is Sam Smith. That's easy for me to remember, okay? Sam Smith. Sam Smith was, lived in Atlanta. It happened a long time ago. At the old Atlanta airport, probably most of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but, you know, the new Atlanta airport's the busiest airport in the world, and they've got all these different, you know, acre, you know every different terminal and just all kind of, you go by the train here and there. But the old Atlanta airport, I do remember, I'm old enough to remember, it was one huge, gigantic room. I mean, it was large. Sam Smith was there. Sam Smith was a businessman. He all dressed up in his suit and getting ready to fly somewhere. In fact, he was flying to Los Angeles. And Sam got there early, as I like to do, so I don't hate to miss a flight. Uh, last year, I missed my first flight, the first of the leg. How did you miss the first flight? I got there to the ticket counter, and the lady said, I said, ma'am, here's my ticket. And she said, sir, you missed your flight. I said, I couldn't have missed my flight. I know when my flight is. She said, evidently, you don't. But Sam Smith was in the old Atlanta airport, like I said, just a huge thing. And he, um, he had some time to kill, and so he's walking around. Starts looking around, and all of a sudden he saw something he had never seen in the Atlanta airport before. It was one of those old weighing machines. You know what I'm talking about? I remember I grew up in Decatur, Georgia, and there was one in front of the F&W Woolworth store. And, you know, it had a big circular thing with a – am I talking to – foreign language here? Okay. It had a, you know, you get your weight. And the good ones had a, had, a, had a card that came out and had your fortune on it. Those were cool. Never were right, but they were cool. Uh, and so Sam Smith's walking, and he sees this weighing machine. He says, I wonder if this thing works. And I remember the old ones, I think, of course, it was a long time ago. I think probably it was a nickel. You put a nickel in. So Sam gets some, looks at this machine, and it had a slot, and it said 25 cents. 
I guess inflation had set in. So Sam gets up on this machine. He says, I want to see if this thing works. He puts the quarter in, and all of a sudden, a voice comes out. This electronic voice comes out. And here's what it said. Your name is Sam Smith. You're waiting for flight 200 to Los Angeles. And you weigh 160 pounds. Sam looked at that machine and said, what in the world? This can't be real. He thought maybe somebody was throwing their voice or something and didn't even plug in. He said, I must have imagined that. So I need to try again. Reached in his pocket, got another quarter, put it in. The voice said, your name is Sam Smith. You weigh 160 pounds. You're waiting for flight 200 to Los Angeles. Sam said, this is unreal. It's just not, it just can't be. And then he had an idea. He looked for the restroom, and it was way over on the other side of the corridor. And so he walked over to the restroom, and he took his overnight bag. Now, this is a very sophisticated businessman, well-dressed. And so he walks in there, and he takes out an overcoat, a little London Fog raincoat kind of thing, and, and put it on and pull the collar up around his neck. He had a pair of sunglasses, and he put the shades on. He's going to fool this machine, he thinks. And so he walks out of there, had, had a rain, floppy rain hat on, had his overcoat. He's walking across the corridor, and he's dragging his legs. So he's going to fool this machine, thinks he's limping. So he drags his legs across. He gets all the way across. He gets up on the machine. He reaches in his pocket. He didn't have a quarter. He looked back. There's a newsstand back towards where the restroom was. He walks all the way, limps all the way back over, waits in line, gives the lady a dollar. She gives him four quarters. He limps all the way back to the machine, gets up on the machine, puts a quarter in, and the voice came out, and it said, your name is still Sam Smith. You still weigh 160 pounds, but you just missed flight 200 to Los Angeles. <laughs> I don't want to miss God's revival. I don't want to miss it. I want to do whatever God tells me to do so that we can experience maybe you for the first time, me for at least the second time. I want to really experience God's revival in this place this week. Have we met the conditions? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves pray, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. I want you to stand with me, please. I'm going to ask Tab to lead us in a song, uh, invitational hymn. Here's the invitation. Don't know exactly how to word this, but um, 
I think it's an invitation, an individual invitation. If, if you want revival in your life, in your heart, and, and you want to find it this week, and remember, it's revival. If you're not a place where you think you ought to be, I'm not at the place I ought to be, I'm going to invite you to come. And just to kneel here and say, God, would you bring revival to me? Would you bring it to my life, to my family? Would you bring it to this camp? Just, Lord, I want it so bad. I need it so badly. Would you come? We're going to invite you to come as we sing. If, I think this morning, if, if you want somebody to pray with you, if you just lift up, lift up your hand, otherwise we'll just leave you alone, just between you and God. People say, why do I have to come to an altar? I get that question all the time. You don't have to come. But I've been doing this a long time. And I've learned there's something about stepping forward. If you physically can, come and kneel. If you can't, just stand. There's something about getting out of the boat, moving forward. God does that. So I know it's a morning service, but mainly the adults are here. This is the backbone of the camp. I understand that. You're the saints. But I believe God wants to work in saints' lives this morning. You spend as much time here. I invite you to come as we sing. Again, if you want me to pray with you or one of the pastors or one of the evangelists to pray with you, just put your hand up. We'll be glad to do that. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come. 
go one more time. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to Thee. Thank you, Jesus. I'm just going to ask these folks, you can stay as long as you want to. If you, other folks out there would like to come after we have the benediction, please feel free to come. Father God, we do thank you that you're a great God. You hear all of our prayers. You never not listen to us. You always hear us. You know the desires of our heart. And I, I sense the desires of our heart this morning is for personal revival. Oh, it, it gets so dry out there sometimes. <laughs> Whether you're a pastor or a layperson. It gets so dry, it gets so hard, and some of our churches are so dry and so dead. Lord, we need personal revival. We need revival in our churches. We need revival in our homes. We need revival in our camp meeting. Lord, it, it, it's, it's wonderful to remember the past. But some of us don't remember how far back when we saw real revival. Well, we want to see it again. We want to experience it again. When these altars were filled with people and tears just stained the altar. When young people, as well as adults, came to know you in a different and new and powerful way that we had never experienced before. Some of us have lost our first love. And you're bringing us back this week. Thank you for revival. Thank you for that word. It's still a, a good word, a biblical word. And so we pray for it again. As we leave this place, that you would revive us again. Revive us. And we'll give you all the praise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can come. You can stay as long as you want. God bless you.